Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, cops and money. Gio Marr will report on the state of the anti-cop movement in a time of backlash, and Tarek Fancy will explain how financiers won't save us from climate disaster. In the summer of 2020, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, the cops were in deep disrepute. Then a rise in shootings and a torrent of copaganda looked to have turned that upside down. Here to update us on the anti-cop movement and the thinking behind it is George, a.k.a. Gio Marr. Gio is a visiting professor at Vassar College and the author of several books, including We Created Chavez from 2013, and most relevantly, A World Without Police, published last year by Verso. Gio Marr. So welcome. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk that the defund the police movement, or actually any talk of reducing funding from cops and shifting it to more humane pursuits, there's a lot of talk that that's all just uh, dead, or if not dead, very seriously uh, in a coma because of the um, rise in crime over the last couple of years, you know, the certain election losses, the election of Eric Adams as the mayor of New York City seemed like a triumph of the cop forces. Um, how do you evaluate um, the uh, the state of the movement um, against the cops these days? I mean, I think there's something definitely to that. Um, we could understand it as a backlash. I would go so far as to say, in, in, in part to underline the fact that it's an active strategy, I would say we've seen a couple of years of open counterinsurgency. You know, looking at Minneapolis, for example, is a good, uh, you know, a good example of this, where you look at the attempt to push through this delayed uh, vote on whether or not to dismantle the Minneapolis police. Um, and, and you had for a full year, all of the forces of the media, of the police force, you know, uh, you know, all, all public voices, um, essentially insisting that abolition, dismantling, even defunding is crazy. Um, and what you saw in Minneapolis, though, was that 40 something percent of, of, of people still voted to dismantle uh, the police department. So you've got both counterinsurgency, which is, of course, spread nationwide, and you've got a persistent inclination um, to look for different uh, alternatives. Um, now, the in, I live in Philadelphia, which last year had an absolutely historic record-breaking uh, murder rate. Um, and, and that's not something that has been invented or exaggerated um, by the forces of the right. Um, but here, you know, again, as an example for other things going on nationwide, you have a situation in which this is being uh, blamed on defunding very easily disproven since there has been no defunding. And since we just saw that for the next year, the Philadelphia police will have $30 million uh, more. So somewhere approaching 800 million, an astonishing uh, amount uh, of money. And yet murders keep increasing, right? And this tells us a lot about both policing itself, its impact, its inability to actually impact public safety. Um, And it also tells us a lot about the uh, bizarre magic uh, through which the police turn their failures into uh, demands for more funding, right? Yeah, I want to develop that last point. How do you read the source of this power of the cops over politics? You know, somebody like Bill de Blasio came into New York, something uh, as mayor, uh, as something of a police reformer, and he ended up seeing paralyzed by fear of the cops. Um, what happens? What is the secret of their power? I mean, the secret is that the world of police, as I call it in, uh, in, in my book, is a project. It's a political project, and it's a project that's been expanding. The power of the police, particularly since the late 1960s, has been expanding dramatically. Um, that's all to say there, there's no secret to this. It's, it's an open strategy that's being pushed specifically by police organizations, the Fraternal Order of Police, the Benevolent Associations. Um, and it's uh, sort of multi, uh, you know, has multiple elements, um, lobbying, pushing through special rights, enshrining in law special processes of negotiation and binding arbitration that make it impossible to discipline them. All of it points toward, on the one hand, of course, increasing salaries to the point where cops make absurd amounts of money, especially when you count overtime, but also increasing uh, impunity um, and a political chokehold on uh, local officials. I mean, I'm I'm no fan of de Blasio, but um, he's a good example of what happens when you try to push back even slightly, right? When you try to sort of voice even the slightest criticism 
of not only the police and what they do, but also the power of the police. And you get bullied, you get blackmailed, you get your child's uh, personal information leaked publicly. You get a whole range of activity. And this is not new. Um, where police can't get what they want uh, through negotiations and through legislation, they try to get it through bullying. They try to get it through threats. They try to get it through uh, blackmail. Um, and these are all parts of their sort of uh, power apparatus. And again, this is a power that's been uh, expanding. Again, what's, what's so interesting is that it, it doesn't help when it comes to actual questions of public safety. When uh, in, in protest, police went on strike in New York City, the so-called blue flu, um, we actually saw statistic, we have statistical analyses showing how much not only crime went down, but complaints of violence went down uh, in the neighborhoods that had been so oppressively policed previously to that. Uh, and so even their own strategies uh, and their own sort of temper tantrums don't always prove the points that they like. But it seems at the national level, we've had some success achieving civilian control of the military. It seems at the local level, it's impossible to get any civilian control over the police. Is that uh, a misperception? Uh, no. I mean, there are obviously are different levels of civilian control. There's certainly a gap between the kind of civilian oversight that people generally think exists and, and the fact that police in reality uh, do pretty much what they want. Again, we're talking about the late 1960s as the, the beginning of the increase, dramatic increase of police power. What was that about? It was about a civilian oversight board in, in New York City. That was when police began to realize that they could use fear. They could use, uh, you know, these sort of nego backdoor negotiations with cities, essentially promising that they would play a part of the power structure, promising that they would be in the pocket of the city, would not go on strike, would not really undermine that power structure as long as they got everything that they wanted, which included no oversight. And, and so oversight is always central to these questions. But again, you've got so many examples. You've got examples in, in San Antonio. You've got examples in in uh, Vallejo, California, you know, these cities where, um, where, where police have engaged in activities that would shock most people, right? Open bullying, stalking, harassing, uh, you know, and, and we can talk about, about Uvalde, Texas, where not only, you know, we're used to seeing the concrete harm that the police cause in communities, communities of color, poor communities, but Uvalde was a great example of the opposite, the flip side, right? Which is the inability, the uselessness of the police to actually do the things that we often uh, expect them to do. Um, and, and so you have a situation now where these things come together. You, you know, new stories coming out that the mother who was detained by the police, handcuffed, broke out of those handcuffs, broke police lines, got into the school and rescued children, is now herself being harassed by the police. Now, a lot of people would look at Avalde, though, and say, you know, the problem isn't the police doing their jobs. The problem was the police didn't do their jobs. And we want the police to do what they're supposed to do in a situation like that. And they didn't, whether out of cowardice or incompetence. Um, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the point is not that, that we necessarily need to uphold what it is the police should or shouldn't do. I think we should underline the fact that, for example, and this is upheld by multiple uh, you know, court cases uh, on the federal level, that the police are not actually obligated to help in those situations. They're not actually obligated to do the things that, again, ideologically, we think that they do which is to pr protect uh, and to serve the public. Yeah, I've heard that. Could you expand on that? The legal requirement of cops is to do what or not do what? Um, there, it's a, it's a, multi a number of cases that have to do with, you know, going back to child abuse, to domestic abuse, uh, and, you know, more recently with implications in the Parkland School uh, shooting, uh, in which it was found that the police, uh, the police officer, which if people remember in Parkland, did not help. He ran. He hid for 45 minutes. He did nothing to help these children. And one of the findings of the court was that police uh, are not in, in under any duty to protect those kids uh, unless, and here's some of the language, unless they have a special relationship to them. In other words, uh, you know, usually used for people being in custody, being held by the police. Um, but here's a, a, an officer who was hired explicitly to protect those students and still the courts are capable of arguing that he had no special relationship and no duty to protect them. So uh, again, the point really is to underline the fact that people assume when they're being bullied into massive amounts of police funding, when they're being told that school resource officers, uh, you know, and school cops are there to protect the kids, that this is what they're there for, this is why we need the funds uh, earmarked for this level of protection. People that are being forced to accept that do not realize often that, that the police are actually, in the final instance, not required to, to help and provide that protection. Now, if we go back to the summer of 2020, which seems like a long time ago in a lot of ways, it seemed like this movement, the anti-police movement, the defund the police, whatever we want to call it, abolition, was making enormous uh, progress among uh, the broad population. A year later, 
Uh, we saw a rise in shootings, rise in murders, and it's all a dim memory. What happened in the course of that year? I mean, a whole range of things happened. First of all, of course, we have the open counterinsurgency campaign campaign to blame everything and all ills on abolition, on defunding. Again, that defunding did not materialize in almost anywhere. Um, in very few places was there any real threat to police funds or police power. Um, and instead, we have, of course, an increase in not all crime, but in many cases, violent crime, often uh, violent crime with, with a gun. And instead of asking ourselves the, the real difficult questions about why is this happening, and instead of actually, I mean, again, I say it really difficult, but a lot of this is not that difficult, right? What do we think would happen when suddenly people you know, are not in school, expected to be living at home, people lose their apartments, they're, they're forced to move back in with family, move back in with parents, um, ex- again, expected to stay indoors, when in reality, a lot of people were just outdoors, um, when the economic opportunities um, that they had uh, enjoyed previous uh, to the pandemic uh, evaporated, when the government provided no alternatives in terms of resources, you know, and, and when, you know, many young people specifically looking for the possibility of developing a level of, of, of status or recognition in their neighborhoods, find the outlets to that blocked. What do we expect would happen? Of course, there's going to be a rise in in conflict, especially when you've got things like the redrawing of, for example, gray and black economies when it comes to drugs, increased drug use. Um, That's been a big part of what's going on in Philadelphia. All of these things contribute in a sort of multifactorial way to an increase in violence. And we know that. We, We shouldn't be surprised about that. But that's not what the police want to talk about, right? They want to talk about Anything else that will allow them to, on the one hand, look as if they have been doing their job, their so-called job of providing public safety. Again, it's not really their job. Secondly, um, they want to do anything that will increase their funding, which they've managed to leverage, for example, in Philadelphia to the tune of 30 million uh, extra dollars. I'm speaking with Gio Mar, author of A World Without Police from Verso. Whatever you think of the police, they seem very inadequate to handling shootings of the sort we've seen in urban America over the last year, year and a half. They're not going to be there. They can't stop something that's underway like that. So what, if anything, is the role of the police in doing anything about uh, the kinds of shootings we've seen uh, over the last year and a half? Yeah, I mean, what you just said is, is really crucial, right? They're not going to be there when it's happening. But we have this idea in our heads that if we simply spread policing uh, across the entirety of society, um, that somehow they will be there at the right time to prevent violent crime from happening when it happens. There's no statistical evidence that that's true at all. There's no statistical evidence that increases in patrols reduce overall violence. At the very least, you know, if there's a cop standing on the corner, you're not going to shoot someone right there. But what happens is it moves down the block. More often, violence moves indoors. It moves out of the site of patrol. Um, There's no evidence, statistically speaking, that police investigations, those processes reduce uh, violence. When you compare different cities, when you compare different levels of policing in different cities or different levels of policing in the same city over time, there's no evidence that policing uh, makes our lives any safer. Um, And if anything, there is if not evidence, a great deal of of powerful indicators suggesting that the fact that our society and our cities are being uh, blackmailed into handing over the majority of their municipal budget in many cases to policing, um, it helps to explain why violence is on the rise, right? What could the city of Philadelphia do with $800 million in terms of creating a society of equals, a society in which people are not struggling to eat and survive, in which people are housed, um, and, and in which people have uh, job opportunities or income. These are all things uh, that, that municipalities could be uh, doing instead of spending all this money on the police. But the reality is, and you, you said this job that they have of, of uh, reducing violence or contributing to safety, ultimately, I don't think that that has been ever really the job of the police. You know, they were founded to uphold property and white supremacy. And that's still pretty much what they do for the most part, you know, aside from these moments where they're expected to perform some kind of concern for the public as a way of justifying their increasing budgets. Other than that, um, it's really a question of power. It's a question of upholding segregation. You know, when you look at it that way, you start to realize that it actually makes sense because we're talking about taking away that money, defunding the police, reinvesting that money into social services that will make violence less prevalent. And yet, when you look at it from the perspective of the police being the ones who actually uphold those inequalities, who police that property, who police those segregated urban spaces, it's not a surprise at all. Uh, the, uh, the immortal words of the uh, old Mayor Daly of Chicago, the police are there to preserve disorder, right? Absolutely. And, and to profit from that disorder. 
The maximalist goal of abolition, I think a lot of people stumble over that. So if we're talking about defunding, that term may not be ideally um, crafted to the political task. But, you know, people can understand shifting money out of the cops, uh, reducing their size, reducing the scope of their action, reducing their funding, <laughs> cutting their salaries and their pensions. But the goal of zero cops, I think people stumble over that. So describe that goal to us. What what the role of it is? Is it some sort of, as Jody Dean would say, like the communist horizon, something we can aspire towards eventually as an ideal? Or is it something you can think of in, in truly practical terms? I think it's both of those things in the sense that it's certainly a horizon that is not going to materialize tomorrow. Even if that were, if we could sort of flip a switch and there were no cops tomorrow, we would immediately have private cops. We would immediately, because we still live in a society of wealth, inequality. We still live in a society of racial inequality and gendered violence uh, in which people will uh, draw upon their own resources to make sure that cops uh, exist. Abolition, you know, gets its name, of course, in the abolition of slavery. Um, and, and looking back to that experience, it's very important for us to understand that abolition must always be a reconstruction, right? And it was the failures of reconstruction after the Civil War that created, helped create the world that we live in today. So when we're talking about the horizon of abolition, we're also talking about a slower process a complex process of building up and rebuilding the world on different foundations. Now, you know, it, it sounds like an evasion on a certain level, but the, there's no escaping uh, this, you know, this process. There's no escaping the slow process of building a, a different kind of world. And when I say it's very con concrete, I think defunding is a great example of that, right? The point is not to say it's defunding or abolition. The point is to understand that when you take again, we've got an $800 million police budget in Philadelphia. If you took $100 million out of that, you would see a, a very interesting situation and experiment in which lives, people's lives would not get more dangerous or less secure, certainly. Um, and if that money is reinvested in community organizations, specifically those organizations that have a proven track record of preventing violence before it escalates, before it happens, of smoothing over uh, tensions within communities, of providing alternatives to young people in particular, uh, who are looking for money uh, and status, you would have a situation in which we can see and begin to see in a very concrete way what abolition looks like. In other words, you don't have to reach the horizon to be able to picture the concreteness of what a world without police looks like. It's all around us, right? In the way we treat our friends and our family and our neighbors without calling, uh, without calling the cops. Well, could you talk a bit more about these techniques for reducing violence? So what kind of organizations and what kind of uh, activities uh, would they pursue to reduce violence? And, yeah, the, and these range from all levels. And, and what's really, uh, on the one hand, both frustrating in the sense that, that they're not very visible, but also very encouraging is the fact that we've got hundreds, if not thousands of organizations across the country engaging in this, and individuals and neighborhood leaders who do this every day, and who every day are preventing violence from escalating to the level of death. Um, there's this kind of epistemological blockage where if, if, the, if a murder doesn't happen, we don't know that it hasn't happened, right? And so we, uh, we, we have a, a blinder when it comes to actually seeing the impact of these organizations, but they're all over the place. I often talk about this great one in, in Chicago called, you know, Mothers Against Census Killing Mask, in which, you know, women took over uh, first a corner and then, you know, a range of blocks with cultural activities, cookouts, barbecues, and also with walking patrols, all without the police. And despite the fact that you've got, you know, Lori Lightfoot coming into, into office saying she's going to move funds away from the police, these organizations are operating on almost zero money compared to the massively bloated uh, budget uh, of, of, of policing in the city of Chicago. These range from that level up to more formal organizations. They range, you know, to cities, for example, diverting uh, mental health 911 calls away from the police and toward, you know, trained intervention specialists. Some of the most astonishing numbers of killings by police have to do with people in, in suffering mental health crises. And of course, police are not trained or in any way qualified to deal with these. Um, but then it ranges all the way down to the sort of micro level of what's happening on your block and in your neighborhood and what kind of trust you're building with your neighbors so that not only if the police come around, neighbors can be called together to keep an eye on them um, and make sure everyone's safe, uh, but also uh, if there is, um, you know, something going on on the block, if there's domestic violence, if there's, you know, fear or concern or insecurity within uh, that community, that people can intervene, you know, resolve it, de-escalate it, again, in a way that involves neither the police uh, nor the kind of damaging, you know, physical violence that, that we're seeing uh, all across the country. Now, what about the prevalence of guns? There are, what, 400 million guns, according to the estimates I've seen uh, among the civilian population of this country. What, if anything, do we do about that? 
I, I mean, it's a difficult question. I, I think, you know, I often feel as if the narrative around guns is, is a bit of a distraction from, uh, from fundamental causes. You know, of course, the presence of guns escalates things very quickly. Of course, it uh, sort of increases uh, death counts dramatically, um, specifically if we're talking about kind of assault style rifles. A lot of these debates, though, are premised on the, the, the idea that, that, you know, some kind of gun reform that actually gets huge numbers of guns off the streets very quickly as possible. And I'm, I'm slightly less optimistic uh, about that. These are still not the fundamental causes, right? They're accelerants. They, they allow people to see something happening on TV and think that they want to, uh, you, know, you know, engage in something like that. But that's not what's causing what's happening in Philadelphia. But it's so easy for the city and it's become really the uh, alibi of the city administration at this point. If the Fraternal Order of Police and its sort of fascistic right-wing view is that the police simply need more money and power to deal with this, the Democratic Party apparatus in Philadelphia has one uh, line, and it's that it's about guns. It's only about guns. It's not about social spending. It's not about lack of opportunities. It's not about, you know, COVID-imposed austerity. It's about guns. And my concern is that that um, is an excuse to not ask these more uh, fundamental questions. It's remarkable that in a political culture that's so obsessed with you know, wasteful government spending, um, that IR has never turned on the police as a target, but they seem to be poster kids for uh, that the, kind of wasteful military, spending. Right? We've got this, yeah. this bizarre ideology that, that gives a huge pass. Uh, again, it's not because it's not a contradiction, right? Because the, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the kind of logic of hating the state that's developed, particularly since the 1960s, has been so thoroughly racialized um, that, you know, that, it, you know, that those who propose it are automatically on the side of the police as those that last line of defense against the sort of uncivilized uh, masses. The thin blue line. The movement uh, to defund or abolish uh, or reduce um, is on the ropes now. Uh, any thoughts on what could be done to revive it? Um, I think, you know, again, you know, we're in a moment of counterinsurgency. I don't, I wouldn't say that, that, that it's on the ropes because, you know, part of what's happening and what will continue to happen, and you saw this in the case of Uvalde in particular, is that as soon as we have, you know, what tragically will occur, which are more events, more killings, more, you know, cases of police uh, violence, more cases of police uselessness and, you know, obsolescence. Um, that the the chorus is is already there waiting in the wings. The analysis is there. The ideological preparation in a certain way and consciousness is there. And people have already begun to ask questions about what is next. Um, and, and so I think we're talking about a momentary lull, um, but one that needs to be fought. People need to be out there making it clear that, of course, what's happening today in terms of gun violence, in terms of violence in our cities, is not the product of, of defunding. And if anything, if violence is going up in society, uh, you know, the fundamental question is, why would we try something that has never worked? Why would we continue to over and over again think that if we simply increase uh, police funding, if we simply increase the number of officers on the street, we're actually going to solve this, when in reality, we need to do the opposite. We need to think about the fact that if violence is going up, that is a failure of the ability of policing to even deal with these questions to begin with, that we need to try something different. So what do you say if you're talking to someone who says, hey, I'm sympathetic with what you say, but I don't want to walk out my uh, apartment door and get shot in the head? What do you say to someone who says that? Uh, I mean, these are, these are difficult conversations we all have to have all the time with our neighbors, with community organizers, with people in the streets, so, you know, particularly we're talking about here in, in Philadelphia. Um, but, you know, the, the fundamental starting point is that, A, the police do not prevent this from happening. They, uh, you know, statistically don't, no matter how much we wish they were capable of, uh, of doing that. Um, and secondly, and, and more fundamentally, the existence of the police and the kind of society governed by police power that we live in is the fundamental reason that this kind of social violence exists. This is the, you know, the way that we need to flip this narrative upside down, invert our vision of the world, uh, and realize that the police are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Yeah, and a society organized around the war of each against all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be hard to abolish the police. Yes. I was Gio Marr, author of A World Without Police from Verso, and a visiting professor at Vassar College. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of I'm So Bored with the USA by The Clash, 42 years ago. Yikes. The boredom has deepened. Over the last few years, what's known as ESG, an abbreviation for Environmental, Social, and Governance Criteria, which are used in addition to conventional financial measures for evaluating potential investments, ESG has attracted growing attention. The E part focuses on how well companies are reducing their climate impact. The S on how they deal with employees, customers, suppliers, and the communities where they operate, and the G with how companies are run, covering issues like executive pay and concern for shareholders. You might find treatment of shareholders a matter of less than screaming urgency, but that's not the world we live in. Corporate liberals have fallen in love with ESG as a way of getting finance to lead us to a better world, as funny as that might sound. At the same time, it's attracted the ire of the right, who think firms should concentrate only on making money, not pursuing what they denounce as a woke agenda. Marjorie Taylor Greene has called it corporate communism. My next guest, Tarek Fancy, thinks ESG is a crock, pure PR, of no effect other than to confuse and maybe even disarm. He wrote a three-part essay on Medium last year devoted to a critique of the cult that attracted lots of attention, at least among people who follow this sort of thing, pointing to, among other things, the enormous and destructive hypocrisy of flying on private jets, not the most climate-friendly mode of transportation, to conferences to discuss ESG. From 2007 to 2013, Tarek Fancy was a banker. He left the trade to start an education profit, Rumi, R-U-M-I-E, and returned to finance in 2017. He got into ESG as a way of merging his two interests— he worked at BlackRock, the world's largest investment firm with nearly $10 trillion under management. BlackRock chair Larry Fink has become Wall Street's most prominent cheerleader for ESG. Tarek Fancy. What was your um, process of disillusionment like? How long did it take and what caused it to set in? It took a few years. And that's why I would say that I don't cast aspersions on anyone who works in the space because it would be wrong of me to do that since I drank the Kool-Aid myself. Um, I do have less sympathy for senior leaders at the top and the CEOs who are generally experienced enough and see all the pieces that they ought to know that this doesn't work. But, you know, in the early days, you know, I thought it was well-intended. And as I worked in the middle of the machine, I slowly became disillusioned to the point that I started to kind of come to the conclusion that this was not helping at all. Green investing seemed to just be, for the most part, a set of sort of non-binding marketing promises that weren't really leading anywhere or changing the system, uh, as well as, you know, a bunch of new products and promises and other things that, you know, just really weren't going to do much at all. But I hadn't yet reached the conclusion that I should go out and pick a fight publicly about, you know, about that or debate it because it's hard to reach the conclusion that green investing is harmful. If people introduce green bonds as an example to fund green projects from the outside, it seems like something that could only be additive and only be good. And it's really only after I first realized that there was not a lot of good coming out of it. It was generally looked like there was new money going into things, but effectively money was just moving around in the end. You know, the real world impact was the same. But even worse, it was after I left that I started to realize that it's, it's, it's worse than being harmless. It's actually a placebo, right? Because if people believe it has real world impact and they spend all their time working on it and we all go and buy ESG funds and a whole bunch of other things, but there's no real world impact out of any of it, then it's actually worse than not helping it's hurting us because we waste a lot of time on products that are based on bankrupt free market theories that don't really make any sense and that only serve really to uh, enrich Wall Street in the short term at the long term public expense. And I should add, by the way, I'm a former investment banker. I'm a capitalist. You know, I, I like business, but I do believe capitalism and business needs to be honest. And I don't believe that we're seeing that from the current set of leaders. So you worked up close with... Um... The big guy in the field, Larry Fink. What was that like? What is what makes Larry tick? It's hard to say. I mean, I, I would be honest when I say that I, you know, sometimes it's easy for someone in that position to be caricatured, you know, because he is the CEO of the largest investment firm, you know, in history, right? I mean, they were founded in 1988 and are now somewhere around 10 trillion dollars. It's it's quite remarkable. Uh, it's grown fast because of the fact that he understands the industry well and has jumped on trends very quickly, including things like passive investing and financial technology. Um, but it's, you know, it's easy to caricature and think that, you know, sort of it's more that he could be solving all of our problems and addressing the climate crisis and so on, but he's not. I think it's actually different than that. I think it's that he can't solve all of our problems and he's saying that he can. And he can't solve them because the constraints legally and from financial incentives mean that 
he can't really take that $10 trillion and start directing it towards sustainability causes in the way that a lot of activists think, because it's not his money. It's money that belongs to retirees, pension funds, so on and so forth. And so he has a lot legal obligation and all of the people at BlackRock who make the decisions have a legal obligation called fiduciary duty to focus on maximizing value measured in dollar values, not social values. And so they're sort of locked into that. And I think that that's exactly the reason economists have said for a long time that you need to change incentives. So for example, if you put a fine on pollution, right? For, for example, a price on carbon, then all of BlackRock will react instantaneously because brown and, and polluting industries are less profitable. And on a relative basis, the green alternatives uh, are much better, right? And so you'll see them naturally start to adjust their capital flows, whether it's debt or equity, whether it's short-term or long-term. You know, and that's exactly why these are the solutions that have been pushed by economic, economists for a long time. In practice, you know, the reality is that these organizations have very short-term incentives, right? And so in many cases, they really just want to delay as long as they can, right? Um, because you know, it's cheaper to market yourself as being green in the short term than it is to actually make the long-term investments to, to truly be green. And if you get paid, right now, by the way, the CEO pays the highest been in decades, CEO tenure is the shortest has been in decades. People get paid a lot of money very, very quickly. And so they don't get paid to think about the long-term, right? They're almost incentivized to convince us that they're doing something even while they're kicking the can down the road because they are gaining outsized profits in the short term at all of our collective expense in the long term. Big asset managers like BlackRock, just talk a bit about how they run. They're supposed to run on profit maximization. They're supposed to seek the highest returns. That's really what drives the field. They're under legal obligation to do so. Does that really pervade every um, aspect of, of working in that field? It does. I mean, it, it provides very important guardrails. I mean, I think obviously there is uh, a little bit of gray area in places like that where fiduciary duty says you should focus on maximizing value. But you know, then the question comes, well, what is maximizing value? And some of these are a bit more subjective and they're judgment calls. For the most part, it does guide everything. It wouldn't guide, for example, like the strategies at the, the, at the top, I mean, in terms of what areas they focus on. But when you actually build the machine, it does guide the individual decision-making. And that's why you tend to find that any of those strategies will tend to be responsive and only focused on profit. And again, it's said by people that that's a bad thing, right? That, oh, they're only focused on profit. I don't know if that's a bad thing because realistically, I don't know if you'd really want portfolio managers or bankers redesigning society anyway, right? Like <laughs> if you gave them a gray area, you know what I mean, like say, oh, like let's do the good, do the right thing and do this green thing. And like that to me is a model that relies on voluntary compliance. And with all the respect to the people I used to work with on behalf of the planet, I don't think we could fly on voluntary compliance. They're going to focus on profit and we should accept that. That's what they're financially incentivized to do and legally obligated to do. And that's why the traditional answer in economics is just take the stuff that we don't want uh, as much of and, you know, make it less profitable, right? And they'll, and they'll start putting less money into it. I mean, there's a reason why BlackRock doesn't invest in hitman or assassin businesses, right? It's illegal, right? There's, we have a, a democratic system to outlaw the things that we don't want in society and more importantly, make less profitable the things we want less of and make more profitable the things we want more of. We could do that today. Like what we did with Operation Warp Speed give the Trump administration credit and, and the head of running that, they produce vaccines in record time. And of course, the pharma companies did it, but they had to be galvanized by government. They had direct uh, R&D spending, right, of billions. They had uh, pre-orders of vaccines for something in the range of a billion doses in the first instance, which of course, multiple times the US population. And it was all because the government said it's in the public interest to make sure that our best minds are focused on this. And you can use taxes and incentives and subsidies to, to push the market, you know, to spark it in a certain direction so that the private sector does what the public's you know, interest needs. Uh, we could do that with an operation, New Frontiers for Green Technology, right, where we backing around base technologies, carbon capture, storage, so on and so forth. And, you know, we accelerate uh, the pace of innovation, but it has not happened yet. What is the mechanism that ESG proponents see uh, pushing finance to lead us in a better climate direction? How do you translate these good wishes into action? What's, how's it supposed to work? I mean, in practice, it's just a free market self-correct theory, right, by another name. And that's what no one actually calls it, which is fascinating, because I went and realized I said, this is just another free market theory. And the logic behind it is that the better you can understand their ESG profile, 
by which people really mean the E and the S, right? The environment and society, those are the reasons we're talking about this because as Larry himself points out, Larry Fink points out in his 2018 annual letter to CEOs, the government seems is perceived to be failing on these issues by the public. And so his argument is that the private sector should step in and fill that role through social purpose with no, no sort of discussion on like the democratic legitimacy around that. But, but the idea is really that um, the better you can understand the E and the S profile in particular, right, of ESG, the more you can understand um, how to allocate more capital to good ESG companies with the understanding and the idea that like they produce also better returns. That last part's really important because they can't talk about it or say they're doing it unless that's true because of the fiduciary you know, legal obligations. They have to say that doing good ESG stuff is good for returns. And in practice, I found that that was not true at all. And the reality is actually that being irresponsible seems to pay, right? There's a reason ExxonMobil pollutes and why Facebook addicts us to their apps. It's because they make a lot of money by doing things that are not in the public interest. And so that is exactly where regulation is meant to play a role. And I liken it to sports, right? I, I think it's sometimes it's hard to hard to understand these things unless you think break it down to an analogy you understand. So, you know, competitive markets are like competitive sports. You can't have the competition without rules and referees. In you know, basketball, you'd have referees blowing the whistle. In capitalism, you have the regulators, right, appointed by democratically elected politicians who are playing that referee-like role. And so the argument they're effectively saying is that ESG is good for returns is kind of like saying the players on the field, they will score more points and win more games uh, because they're sportsmanlike and because they play clean. It sounds like a great idea, right? It's very kumbaya. We all want to live in that world. I look at the data of the largest asset manager in history, and I'm a trained investor, and I did not see that. What I saw was that playing dirty, right, again and again, seems to win the game. And so what scared me is that these narratives seem intended more than anything else to delay the referees from coming back in, fixing the game. And the worst part about it is that today, all of these big asset managers, not only are they telling us to rely on ESG, which is the free market self-correct theory, they also directly and indirectly are making it impossible for the government to actually come in and fix the rules, right? So to give you an example, BlackRock in 2019 faced a shareholder resolution. Ask, this is their own shareholders proposing and asking if they would disclose their political spending activities, which as we know, post the 2010 Citizens United Supreme Court decision, unlocked political spending by corporations that is effectively limitless and, and, and difficult or impossible to trace. And they declined. Right, they declined, uh, and and they've also used their voting power across their ownership and other companies in corporate America to also block such resolutions. And it's terrible because it's if you think of the sports analogy, it would be like them saying ESG is the answer, which is kind of like you know a bunch of talking points that a let's say Draymond Green might off, offer after the game on like you know hey I know the game's gotten dirty, but here's what I'm trying to do, blah blah blah, good sportsmanship, we're trying to play clean. And then you ask Draymond, hey by the way, we heard a, a rumor that you might be giving secret payments to the refs behind the scenes. And then he says, I don't feel like talking about that. <laughs> and he walks away. You know, and so it's like, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Because it's an untenable position. That's not even capitalism to me, right? That That's what I would call, that's just dishonest. I think that there is no reason that um, capitalism has to be dishonest. And if you run the system the way they are, the lie that's being told to us is that this is like a collective failure. Like, oh, we're all, we need to do better. And I'm, I look at it and I'm like, no, this looks like a heist. You know, relative to Larry Fink, what am I, right? I'm younger, I'm poorer, and I'm darker skinned. It's not lost on me the fact that the people who are going to lose out the most from the delay on climate change are the youngest, the poorest, and the darkest skinned people in the world, right? And, and I think it's in very poor taste, actually, that, you know, Wall Street has not even responded to this argument, right? I, I can't even get a response out of Larry Fink or, or any of these folks. They know what I'm saying. They know very well they don't have a good answer. I mean, I can say that confidently because I'm a former insider, so I know what cards they're holding. And the debate that society needs to have, which is in the interest of BlackRock's own younger employees, uh, is not happening. And we're burning valuable time on, you know, stuff like the current version of what ESG is, which is just, a, again, a really a set of marketing narratives that somehow try to convince us that we can address a market failure through marketing. I'm speaking with the former banker and critic of environmental standards and finance, Tarek Fancy.
What about the possibility that a lot of ESG is designed to alleviate guilt, but people who work in finance make a lot of money. They may think what they do is either pointless or destructive, but uh, they make a lot of money and it's hard to turn that down. So if you have e these ESG goals, then you know it may makes people feel better about what they're doing. The broader society, the appeal of green products is that we feel guilty that we're wrecking the earth. So if we buy a nice detergent, it'll be kinder to the earth and everything will be better. I mean, how much of uh, this is driven by that kind of treatment for guilt? That's probably the most important portion of it right now. I wrote uh, an essay last year that went viral. It was a three-part essay entitled The Secret Diary of a Sustainable Investor. And I made it as interesting and exciting as I can. I had all kinds of anecdotes of life and high finance. Uh, and the goal was really to communicate to people my journey of how I realized that this doesn't make sense and that we need to expose this quickly so we can have this debate and move to something that does work. And the reason I mentioned that is because last week I put out the fourth, I wrote an epilogue to the paper, you know, year on, and I published it last week. And I actually compare ESG to the medieval church practice of the indulgences. Oh, that was a nice one, yes. Yeah, it, it's fascinating, right? Because at that, in that era, this is probably like uh, 700 years ago, 600 years ago, the practice had gotten to the point prior to Martin Luther and the 95 Theses and the Protestant Reformation and everything, it had reached a point where it needed to be reined in because you had friars going around and not just asking for uh, money for indulgences, which require you to actually repent, but saying, no, no, even your dead relatives, you obviously can't repent. You know, you give us money, we'll get them out of purgatory, which is obviously a bit of an unverifiable transaction. And if you dig into it, it's really, you know, there's, there's no way to know what's actually happening, but it's really just seems to be so people feel less guilty. That is effectively what ESG is, right? You're paying for better marketing. Take the detergent example. First of all, if you have the green detergent next to the non-green detergent on the shelf, problem number one is that no one actually is regulating what it is to be green, right? So it may be the same thing or slightly different, but then painted green. And, and the same is true of these investments, right? We don't, when they say they, they follow environmental concerns, we don't actually know what they do. A hundred percent, right? I mean, they basically figured out that with a lot of products, many of which are commoditized, certain investment products are very low, free and commoditized that if you can effectively paint it green, then uh, people will pay more for it, right? To really to assuage guilt more than anything else. Um, and the problem with that is number one, again, the green version, you don't even know if it's green. It might just be you're paying $2 more to feel less guilty. And you know the company's super happy because they have a better margins on the premium green brand. But the second much bigger problem that I find is ridiculous is that that actually puts the, even if it worked, right? Imagine the green one actually was better and then the non-green one wasn't. First of all, that doesn't make any sense because for us to flatten the greenhouse gas emissions curve, it's going to mean that like everybody needs to change how they're operating. Similar to how we, you know, we flattened the systemic curve for infections for COVID. It wasn't like we were sort of like, you know, oh, you know, some people can wear a mask and some people it's okay. It was like, oh, you're not going to flatten the curve unless everybody, you know, substantially everyone is, is trying to follow the rules. And so you really don't need a green brand and non-green brand. You need everything to be green. And that's the fundamental challenge that I have. Even if you look at the US in the post-World War II period, there was better outcomes in terms of economic inequality, right? The stronger middle class and so on. And also better environmental protections, relatively speaking. I mean, you know, Richard Nixon, of all people, founded the EPA in 1970. And there was never any discussion of like a parallel financial system. Of, we had a better outcomes and it was no like green, there was no ESG or, or green versions of all these products, right? Um, it's because regulation protected the natural environment, in particular for the E. The S issues are often cultural and they take leadership and cultural change from the top that you know could take a generation. But the E issues are pretty black and white. If you don't uh, create a disincentive for companies to exploit the natural environment in the short term, even in ways that deplete or destroy it over the long term, like they'll keep doing it. And it's not because they're evil or they're bad people. It's because that's how the system works. And any economist will tell you, if you leave loopholes like that, they will get exploited, right? Otherwise, the market, by definition, isn't, isn't efficient. All right. Uh, two more questions, then I'll let you go. Um, you make a distinction in uh, the pieces, several places, um, between financial risk and climate risk, uh, and that reducing financial risk is not the same as reducing the risk to people from climate. What, what, could you expand on that? The reason I'm so worried that a lot of this stuff is a placebo is because even the way it's marketed to people, it seems to be almost like that's understood. By which I mean, like Wall Street will talk all day long about how they're doing all this great work to protect financial portfolios from climate risks, right? And you'll hear like the former UK central bank governor, Mark Carney, and other people will always talk about, you know, climate risk, climate risk. 
before publishing the secret diary paper, I worked on a study with a university and we showed, we, we showed clearly that nearly 80% of people think that helping to address climate risks is the same thing as fighting climate change, which it's absolutely not, right? I mean, stopping climate change would be like stopping the wildfire from approaching your house and burning it down. What they're talking about is selling you wildfire insurance before that happens, right? So that they're not trying to stop the destruction. They're trying to like protect your portfolio from the results. I was trying to think how to explain it to a friend uh, of mine who lives in Miami and he was, you know, he's really was buying a house and he was all worried about the, the risks of climate change. And he was really excited. He said, oh, you're at BlackRock and you guys are doing all this work to address climate risks. And he finally got it when I paused and I said, listen, Carlos, we're not trying to stop Miami from getting clobbered by climate change. We're trying to get our money out before it hits. So that's what they really mean. They're saying, listen, let's get, let's sell stuff in Miami, you know, at some point, because it's going to get shellacked Uh, and we'll buy stuff in North Dakota, right? Because it turns out the tempered regions actually see a GDP gain in the aggregate. It's terrible for the U S right. But that's really what they mean with climate risks. It means, you know, there's an eight-year-old girl in Bangladesh whose village is going to be debated. The answer is, and here's how we're going to stop that from happening. The answer is, hey, we'll make sure our clients don't lose any money on it. You talk about the importance of state action. It's going to be government regulation that's going to, the only thing that's really going to motivate serious action about climate. And we can't expect the, the private sector to take the lead. And it's just not what they're about. But that means stepping on businesses' freedom of investment, and it may step on profits. And so um, I would think the financial sector would resist that as much as they can. How do we deal with that fact? I mean, they, they will, if push comes to shove, become the enemy of serious climate action. I think that's right. I mean, I think they're, they don't have to be the enemies of it, but I think today they are operating in a way that they are effectively a major obstacle to climate action. Ultimately, I think the most important thing for us to make the changes required is that we have to have a bunch of honest capitalists stand up and say, listen, this is not it, right? Because right now, ESG is masquerading as business communities' best answer to climate change. And it's ridiculously irresponsible because it's just a bunch of marketing crap that at the end of the day leads to what we've seen in the last five years, right? Which is that everyone keeps talking a big game and ESG assets increase and people talk more about ESG. And somehow that happens alongside rising emissions, right? Because there's no link between the two. What I've found was being a bit stunning about it is a lack of accountability from Wall Street. And I think, to be honest, you know, they don't even want to have this debate. And, I, and again, they don't because they don't have an answer. Right. But what stuns me a little bit is if you know, they're claiming they can take roles that are left by you know, what they call failing public sector. But the difference is the public sector is elected. If I were working for a government minister somewhere and left and went to the press and said, hey, all the stuff they're talking about for green is all nonsense, like it doesn't work. The minister will be forced to respond within 24 hours. Larry Fink hasn't responded in over a year because he's just not incentivized to. Capitalism was not going to survive over the long term uh, unless it serves the public interest. And if serving the public interest means that business is going to have to be forced through mandatory compliance today to do something that we know is going to pay off in not like a thousand years, but like 10, 20, 30 years, like when Greta Thunberg is like probably not even 50 that's something that needs to happen. I'm sorry that it's bad for their short-term profits, but it is good for their long-term profits and viability, even if the existing CEO only gets paid for the next five years and doesn't really think about that. Like It's important for that company. It's important for society. It's important for their younger employees. It's economics, but at its core, it's political, right? It's, it doesn't matter what your political stripes are, and I don't take a side left, right, or the other. I don't see how any political system can survive. It is not bring the long-term public interest. And today we see that the two generations alive no longer believe in capitalism. It's millennial and Gen Z. Unsurprisingly, right there. And I hear a bunch of you know boomers. I'm not Gen Z, millennial, or boomer, but I'll see a bunch of boomers. They all look at these people. They don't believe, and they're just spoiled. And I say, of course they don't believe in capitalism. And they're right not to, because all the leaders of capitalism today claim that this is a really big problem they want to solve. And then the results they see every year are, you know, they read the IPCC report and it's like reading a report card. And, you know, someone said they're putting in a lot of effort, but they're getting a lot of Fs. So you have to conclude that like, this doesn't seem to work. And unless I think honest capitalists stand up and say, listen, you know, we need systemic reforms. Of course, the private sector has to be part of it, but they can't lead it because the incentives need to be adjusted and only the public sector has the special powers and the democratic legitimacy to do that. You know, unless that debate happens sooner, we, we risk the planet and we risk political stability also. Do you ever hear from your old colleagues? 
I've talked to a bunch, you know, um, here and there, and I talked to people behind the scenes. In fact, actually, frankly, there's a lot of BlackRock employees who have reached out and are more and more interested in this. And as you can imagine, they tend to be younger ones. You know, the senior ones, I think, all tend to agree, but they can't really break ranks. But the younger ones are starting to pay a lot of attention because they know this is not a personal thing. I don't have any issues with BlackRock. I've absolved the firm specifically, but said that, you know, it's a systemic issue. Um, that, that I could see clearly from the vantage point of the biggest firm that, you know, it doesn't work across the board. And I think they kind of understand that this is really a, a debate that's intergenerational in nature. I, I, don't, I even reject the idea that it's left or right. I, I, you know, sort of the whole people talking about woke capitalism. If you believe in science, everyone really does whether they say it or not. And in particular, young people, right? Because they have been educated more recently and unlike probably yourself or myself, where we learned that climate change is real after we had graduated from high school and everything else. They know that from the beginning and they're watching us in slow motion slam into a wall. And I think that um, regardless of your political affiliation, if you're young and you want to not ruin your own future, they're going to need to be a lot more forceful in, in, in pushing accountability on older generations who often seem to be stuck in existing models that also happen to benefit them. And as we've seen in the last few years, like they know how to fix these problems. It's just that it's not profitable, so they won't do it unless they're compelled to. That was Tarek Fancy, a former portfolio manager at BlackRock, where he worked in applying climate standards to investment. You can find his critical essays in the topic on Medium. And yes, he's a capitalist, not a revolutionary socialist. My alarm bells always ring when someone rejects the left-right distinction, but we're open to intellectual diversity here on this show. And maybe his concerns about capitalism's long-term viability are a sign of hope. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Pessoa, Portuguese for person, by the Brazilian composer Marcus Balter, performer the flutist Claire Chase. Till next week, bye. Thank you.